Brogan, are we even now? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, you know, when you were away, I had two guests on, and now you've had two guests on. I mean, granted, I had them all on at once, whereas you split yours out. <laughs> I space them out, yeah. Think of it as like a revenge thing, you know? I see. It's not out of spite, but, you know... <laughs> If it was, imagine that, yes. I mean, I'm glad I worked overtime, uh, you know, handing out all those uh, business cards at PAX, only to... Did you? Only for their first episode to be uh, ones I'm not even on. <laughs> well, well, now they can enjoy this one, right? Um, how many... How was PAX? PAX was, PAX was a grand old time. I, I had a good time. Did you hand out business cards or did you make business cards and then just kind of held on to them and you didn't talk to anyone? I made 50 business cards and I wound up with 24 remaining. Now then, I go. didn't necessarily hand these to people, but I strategically placed what? them around... The convention. Like a scavenger hunt? Well, I'm sure the janitor who was throwing away this stuff uh, was very interested in this podcast. Uh, see, you say that, but one of the places <laughs> I kept putting cards was in the bathroom stalls. And when I mentioned to someone, I'm on the Daydream cast, he was like, oh, I saw your card in the bathroom. I thought to myself, <laughs> who is a more captive audience than someone pooping? Um... Murph, I, I, I think uh, I think next time maybe I should deal with the cards. All right. <laughs> maybe I don't want their first thought of this podcast to be a toilet. Well, I you sound pretty delusional when you say that, Brogan. <laughs> all right, you're you're trying to segue now. All right, we're we're done with. Is that all you wanted to say about packs? I mean, I wrote two articles on thetwingeeks.com. You can go read them now. There you go. Yes, plug it. There we go. It was good. they were good too, and Cal also wrote stuff about it. Yeah, I, I had a good time. Um, I, I met good. I met some devs, conversed, maybe have some people I may bring on for a later episode. Maybe that's what it's all about. It's that networking. Network. Yes, we get some game devs up in this. Ooh, it's good. I got my I got my picture taken with the turtle pope from Elden Ring. Oh, that's the dream. I. I'm so jealous now. That's my favorite character in Elden Ring, other than Dungeed. I didn't meet. I didn't meet the Turtle Pope. I never found it. What? Yeah. Murph, there's like a. Never mind. We're not going to get into this. I'm going to talk about Dread Delusion now. Okay. Do they have a Turtle Pope? <laughs> not that I've seen. Um, this game remind. First of all, both games I played this week are early access. Mm -hmm. So. Um... I saw Dread Delusion at PAX. Yeah, uh, it, it's definitely visually interesting. I think uh, Dread Delusion grabs the attention. Um, I think aesthetically, it's... Um, I will I guess I'll just say, it's like, in gameplay, it's like a combination between Morrowind and Kingsfield. But 
I think the Morrowind aspects are um, very surface level almost. Um, it's not a very in-depth RPG. There's a lot of RPG mechanics and there's like a fleshed out world. And there's there's little elements that make you go, oh yeah, this is definitely trying to be Morrowind. But um, it's, it's much more simple in terms of combat and loot and is much more of a visceral... Uh, experience it, it, and it reminded me more of Kingsfield in that sense. Uh, but it is um, a it is a horror game, right? I mean, it's from Dread XP, and they're primarily known for like doing indie horror games. Well, I first of all, maybe we should have this conversation. Um, I think horror is sort of two distinct approaches in genre, which is one is much more in the conventional. I guess the way to say it is trying to scare you, and then the other's an aesthetic. Okay. Um, I think this one is much more into the aesthetic. So this is this is spooky, not scary. Yes, but there's also, I mean, like, as much as Bloodborne would be spooky. Does that make sense? I qualify. Like, I qualify of... Bloodborne as more spooky, say for like Upper Cathedral Ward. Yes. Well, no, I mean, there's moments, basically what I'm trying to say here is, is a lot of the horror aspects go into the madness or the monster designs or things like that. In terms of like actual visceral gameplay, you're not being scared. Okay. You're pretty empowered and you're generally fighting mob enemies. Okay. That so being it's, said, it's a scary in the same way that like a dungeon full of skeletons in like Skyrim is quote unquote scary. Yes, I, I I would say it's a little bit scarier than that. I think they try a little harder, but yes, generally speaking, you're dungeon crawling, you're doing that shit. Okay, yes. so what is like the basic like world? Um, the basic world, I don't I don't remember all of the names, which is devastating. I should I should have written down names and stuff. But basically, um, there's multiple islands separated around, and um, you're on the hunt for you're you're a prisoner. Um, who needs to earn their freedom back by hunting down a sort of rogue fugitive. Hmm. And there's different factions at play. Um, and you're basically trying to go from island to island hunting down um, this rogue fugitive who's like, there's deeper lore to it. There's there's sort of a, a god aspects to it where uh, there's like a god war hundreds of years ago. Um, there's like a touch of madness where um, the way you level up is by becoming more insane. Does that make sense? Okay, and, does that um, reflect in the gameplay? Like, the more insane you are, the more, I don't know, crazy stuff happens? Or is that just flavor? No, it's not like Eternal... Yeah, it's mostly flavor. It's not like Eternal Darkness, if that's what you were... Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, that is kind of what I was leaning into. But but the game already starts in in such a... If you've, if you've seen screenshots of it or video of it... Um, the creature designs are very unique and specific. They're they're very inspired. Yeah. And like the world itself is not like a typical fantasy world. It's got the uh, a sort of horror red sky. Reminds me of Kingsfield Three in the red sky. Yeah, it's and definitely of Elden Ring. It's definitely a bit rough to look at from the screenshots. Like you gotta you gotta like this particular aesthetic. Yes. Yeah. 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 But like I do. Um, I, I enjoy it, and especially when you get to certain islands, there's good uses of color as well. Um, and there's there's interesting side quests for a game that's not very complex in RPG stuff. Um, what I really appreciate about the game is, like, 
it's bigger than you think it is. Um, I'm always surprised by how big the game already is in early access. So I can't wait to see the final product. And in terms of side quests, there are some ones that are like genuinely exciting. Like um, I'll, I'll go ahead and say one. Um, there's an island which is basically like an undead island where the undead actively need to eat human flesh. But like they won't touch you because they have farms now where they have oh. flesh farms where they raise uh, flesh piles so they can just safely uh, and ethically source their flesh instead of eating humans. However, you come across one and you realize that the flesh can talk and they can feel but they can only talk and feel and communicate to other flesh beings which you are the only one of on that island so then there's an ethical dilemma of like uh now (laughs) there's there's a bunch of me still being bred for for death and then like that's very interesting to me stuff stuff like that is throughout the game and it's it's super enjoyable okay so it's early access is it like early access in the sense that like the devs are Every update is like, okay, here's a little more of the story or here's a like a new area or mechanic. Or does it just feel like this is more like the refinement period? Um, they're they're actively adding new things all the time. There are um I haven't paid super close attention, but they actively um show dev videos uh in which they're adding entirely new aspects to it. Um, I didn't. I didn't complete this one. I did complete Gloomwood, which we'll talk about later. But uh, this this one required more time to it. There was a lot more content, so I wasn't able to fully get through it. But I super enjoyed it, and I would recommend it. Um, and we'll wait and see what happens. Okay. Okay. Well, I've um, for the first time in a few episodes, I actually don't have any indie games to highlight this episode. Um, all my indie coverage went into the articles on PAX. Um, instead, I'm, I've got, uh, games from the big two. I've got a uh, Nintendo and Sega. Um. <laughs> You're from the fucking nineties. Well, there we go. Yeah. Um, so the Nintendo game I've got is I've, I've been playing Splatoon 3 since launch. Uh. Okay. And, uh, I love, for the record, I'm not as big of a Splatoon head as everyone else in the network. I do love Splatoon. So Splatoon I, is a good game, and I have Splatoon 2. It's also a good game. I've never played a Splatoon. This is my first one. Okay, so what are your thoughts on it? Um, so I understand, like, the basic premise, because, you know, I watch Nintendo Directs and things, and it, what shocked me is that, like, Splatoon is as easy to pick up as it looks, if yes. that makes sense. Because, like, something like... Absolutely. I don't know. Like, your average FPS multiplayer game that comes out now like like i don't know counter-strike or something you think to yourself oh all you do is point and click at the guys and they die but uh you know it's somehow much more complicated than that every time whereas splatoon the premise is literally ink turf and try to get more turf than your opponent and the and it's just it just is that you know there are like side modes like the salmon run or the competitive uh the ranked matches but if you're just doing the turf battle, which is pretty much all I've done, um, it's exceedingly easy to just drop into a game and be like, okay, I'm going to go ink terrain now. Yeah, and it's still engaging because it's like it's like an arena shooter where you're actively uh, forming the um, the map. Yeah, you're, you're forming like the no man's land and the... Uh, I think what it does best is like you always feel like you're contributing. 
you know? Yes. Sometimes, like, I, I played a lot of Overwatch back when that Blizzard was not so well-known for being terrible. Um, but when I would play Overwatch, you know, you'd always have those matches where it's like, I didn't do fucking anything. I spawned and then died. I contributed nothing. Yeah. But with, like, Splatoon, you always feel like you've inked just a little bit more terrain. You've always reclaimed some section of the map for your team. Even if, like, as soon as you go down, that section may get, like, wiped away but you can always just go back and do it again. You know, it's like that Pink Panther cartoon. Yeah, well, it's testing. What, what I like is it, it tests different but still equally important uh, things for a shooter and a, and a game. Like, just, I, I, I like that ability to, and it can still be team-oriented, mm -hmm. too, Yeah. in terms of covering specific spaces or being certain aggressive, taking out certain portions of the opponent's paint or utilizing enough paint to give you a pathway to squid along or something there's there's plenty of uh things that the game still tests even though it's easy it's still really hard once you get into the nuances which is still fun yeah it requires a lot of like spatial awareness or like i i'm terrible so far about keeping track of my ink because i've it mm -hmm. it was only until like last night that i realized the tube on your character's back shows how much ink they have oh goodness um well so at least you figured it out now yeah yeah well you know I, well even with that even with that i am some sort of splatoon savant it seems because my last like dozen or so matches i've come out with three golds top of my team so i don't know is that just matchmaking and they're matchmaking you with babies or what i i i don't know i rock the uh i rock the mini bow which is a new weapon in this game i guess uh i have okay. a build i call never not shooting missiles and that seems to have been okay. uh, seems to have done very well. Yeah, no, I mean, constant constant paint per second is a dream. So, mm -hmm. you know, and just I'm just glad to finally be playing Splatoon because um, I I like the aesthetic of it. I've always admired the aesthetic. It feels very much like a game that should have come out on the Dreamcast back in the day. No, there, yep. No, I can I can definitely see that. I like. I like the attitude of it, and it says so much that it's, like, so popular in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love the personality and style. Um, it feels very inspired for a Nintendo game. Like, I'm always shocked that Splatoon is a Nintendo game when it comes to everything but the gameplay. And then when I play the game, it feels like a Nintendo game. It definitely feels, like, much fresher in IP. And that's definitely because yes. of recency, but, like, something like, I don't know, Pikmin. Uh Pikmin never felt that fresh, even when it came out. It's a good, like, I love Pikmin. Yeah. I love Pikmin a lot. But... No, but but if they could have, they would have made Pikmin in 87 if there was yeah. a possibility. Mm -hmm, definitely. Yeah. yeah, and that's what I'm getting at. So, yeah. like, definitely not, like, right now it's sort of just a pick-up-and-play game for me. I'm not getting, like, tilted at any matches or anything. Um, yeah. So we'll see if I get greater investment in it, but I'm I'm having a lot of fun with it. Give it time. Have you played with anybody? Have you played with Pavlos? Yeah. Literally, it's like the only game Pavlos plays. I, I have played with Pavlos, and he definitely gets tilted. Um, <laughs> yeah, he does. Um, no, yeah. I played with him one time on Overwatch, and it was I think it was a I think that's the reason why I never picked up Splatoon 2, um, even though I got a Switch right around when that came out, is because I kind of said to myself, well, I don't have anyone to play this with, so... Like, if I don't have yeah. some sort of rapport when doing online matches, um, I don't know. I, it's not as engaging for me. Um, 
but that was also back when I thought that Splatoon was a much somehow a much more complicated game than it is. Yeah. Do you get intimidated by how complex a game is? It seems like it seems like you're always intimidated by it, by what a the expectations of a game. It kind of depends on what the game is. If it's like I don't know any sort of online game where I'm being dropped in a team, um, I get performance anxiety. You know, yeah. even though I'm probably going to be ranked with people who also just got the game. I'm going to be like, I don't know what the mechanics are. I'm going to drag everyone down. I feel that way about MOBAs. Yeah, definitely. Like I did, uh, I tried getting into like Heroes of the Storm and no, no mileage there. Like I did five matches and noped out. And if you solo random, they will get mad at you too. Cause the, mm-hmm. cause it's like, Oh, you don't know what you're doing. That's like, no fucking duh. I don't know what I'm doing. Yes, yeah. I agree. Exactly. Like the last online game that I really got into was overwatch. And that's cause I got that like yeah. right when it came out. And also I had followed all like the developer logs. So I knew how to play. Are you excited for overwatch too? I know. <laughs> yeah, that's, fair. I don't No, I, know. I, I, yeah. I dropped doing blizzard stuff during like all the Hong Kong, uh, fiasco. And I have no real encouragement to go back. Yeah. Yeah. And then everything they've done since in terms of Diablo or Warcraft has been, um, looks like an utter failure. Yeah. It, or it, at the very least looks utterly uninteresting. And even setting aside like the PR stuff, like I, I couldn't go back to Overwatch now because of, it's like now I'm intimidated by it. Because now I don't know what the meta is. I don't know what all the like hero changes are or what the new heroes do. I'd be like, flopping around with my dick out you know i think that was the ultimate failure of overwatch was every six months there would be a and not just a minor meta tweak there would be like a major meta identity crisis where they would completely revamp how you play the game Mm -hmm. yeah exactly that that wasn't satisfying for anybody other than the people who were like shackled to the game yeah and for a while i i was shackled to the game i Boy, howdy, I spent a lot of money on loot boxes. Boy, howdy. Um, well, guess what? If you're into it, you can spend it on season passes now. Those are the new loot boxes, yeah. baby. Yeah. <laughs> um, luckily, Splatoon does not seem to have any of those. You just Thank get God. new stuff by playing the game. Isn't that a novel concept? A, and you know what? Also, uh the like starting gear you get in Splatoon is also super useful. Like a uh, Pavlos, he still uses the starting gun. There we go. So <laughs> being classic. Yeah. So, you know, always. I, th- I think it's a good game. I suppose it's time for me to talk about gloom. Yeah. My, my dyslexia is kicked in. You're playing a Splatoon wood two or a Splatoon wood. Two. <laughs> or gloom tune four. Yeah. The, yeah. There we go. Uh, this is a nightmare for anyone who's not reading our notes. Um, Gloomwood's good. Gloomwood's mm-hmm. really good. Um, it is a, a New Blood pu- published game. Um, it is also in early development. It is super in early development. I'm. I guess I'm surprised, but I shouldn't be because it's like one guy working on it. Um, it's but... been it's been like teased for a while. Like it seems like the last couple of E3s. There was a demo that you could play three years ago. Um, but but now there is like the demo is gone. There is now a complete overhaul. There is now a complete realization of the game. Um, and it goes up to 
the the game basically as of right now is a fishery level which is like a tutorial um a, a mining level to sort of bring back thief vibes the game is a thief like by the way in case you're wondering how it plays mm-hmm. plays like someone really liked the game thief i played a bit of the good. demo i played like an hour of the demo there's a fishery level a um a mine level and then there's an outdoor section outside the mines that you go through but the game stops before you're able to get into town um so so i don't know how many hours that is but it's super enjoyable what you play um i i think one of the major differences in overhauls they did was the game has a lot more um and and i think it's interesting how this title in influences other titles you know how like basically this game is advertised a lot as a bloodborne game even though it's just because it's victorian yeah even though it's secretly a thief game what's interesting is this game has a lot of resident evil 4 influences Hmm. and i always get my one of my favorite parts of bloodborne is the fact that it feels like resident evil 4 i does does that make sense i just like in the the plot and the like the tone no no it's it's specifically and this this is a thing in gloomwood first of all gloomwood has the inventory system of resident evil 4 yeah so it's a briefcase where you have to fit things in yes i I know that much that that is one of the primary things that they uh borrowed but there's also a sort of um it's the outsider thing where you are the outsider and then you're coming along and you're seeing the townspeople and the townspeople are functioning on their own and you're the bad guy to Mm. them and they point at you and then they yell we gotta kill you and then it's you against everybody else okay so it's a very hostile environment and it's also just the setting and the tone especially when it's outdoors so like for for bloodborne it, it would be a, a little bit of central yarnum with the villagers yelling at you but yeah. it's also when you get go out into the uh graveyard sections like when you have to fight the hemlock witch and stuff does that make sense yeah yeah i, I get what you're saying okay um but anyways for gloomwood specifically um yeah there's there's just like a there's like a resident evil 4 vibe thrown into the thief you know vibes and it and it plays really well for me how um it's very punishing in a good way. Okay. Um, it's very there for saving. You have to save in specific spots. And I found myself going back to the save time and time again, just to be safe because there were, there would be like high moments of tension where I would not be able to save for, you know, 10, 15 minutes at a time or 20 minutes or 30 minutes, depending on how long I'm waiting for this guy to walk by, you know, mm-hmm. but um, it's really good suspenseful stealth. It's a stealth game, primarily. Yeah, I was about so. to say. So, like, as as term, like, how thiefy is it? Because it is so thiefy. Um, it is, in terms of thiefiness, it is. I would say eight tenths. That's pretty. Um, it's pretty thiefy because what was it? The joke website they did to like link to the store page was Bloodborne with, or Bloodborne with guns or something, or. Well, that's the thing is, it's like they're trying to advertise it like that because I think that's the only thing people care about nowadays is Bloodborne. But anyways, um, 
Oh God. Um, but you're crouching and you're slow walking and you're yeah. hiding in shadows. You have a ring that tells you how visible you are at any given time. Yeah. And you have a shotgun, so, but you're probably not using that shotgun too often. No, no, you're not. It, it kills fast, but you also can't carry your lantern with it. And the lantern is super useful for dark segments because there's, there's some segments that are really dark, like the, the mines and, and, Oh my gosh. I, I had trouble with the mines, but uh, because the main enemy was dogs. Oh no. So the dogs were like, a, oh yeah. Oh no, the do dogs are the worst enemies, both in Bloodborne and uh, Resident Evil 4. Right? Again, it's the vibes. It's all about the vibes, you know? <laughs> okay. So the, so similar question to Dread Delusion. This is also an early access to like what degree is it? Does it just feel like you're doing the demo plus some new levels or? Okay. So Dread Delusion has a lot of girth to it in terms of content already. Mm -hmm. um, the, you, you can get a lot of hours out of Dread Delusion already. And what they're adding to it um, feels, feels useful and stuff, but you can pick it up and play it now. Part of me is a little hesitant on recommending Gloomwood as it is because it's still very early on. I, I think I think in terms of version, it's like point one, if that makes sense. Oh, geez. So like we're we're yes. So like I think um I think the gameplay is all there. I think the levels are not fully developed yet going forward. So I think what they're going to be doing is adding levels. Again, it stops before you go into town, which is a big deal for a thief game. So, you know. Okay, I see. So they're selling this for $20, but it's 10% off right now. Like, yes. that doesn't sound like that's worth $20, though. It was for me, because also I'm a person that pays early for early access because i like i like showing the support early for mm -hmm. developers again this was made by one guy and like it's very clearly um you know a passion project and it's very clearly like he's working on it it's yeah. not like oh there's nothing here um i did get let's say three hours worth out of it and mm -hmm. and i would gladly play more of it and there's also sections of those three hours that would be clearly expanded on. Like when I was going through the outside section, there's a, there's an inn that um, is almost completely boarded up except for the basement. You go through the basement, but you can tell that you're supposed to go through the inn at a later build because it says it's under development. Ah, uh, okay. So, so it's just very, it's just very blatant about that. Yes. It's very honest about what you're missing out on and what's going to be added. Like also in that inn, I can tell why that why they blocked it off because um, there's only two real enemies in the game uh, as of right now, which are the main guards uh, with different weapons, but they're guards and the dogs from the caves. But um, I, I can hear a very distinctly different sound than the normal dogs um, up above the thing. And I feel like they're werewolves or something like, or I feel like there's another type of monster in the, uh, in. So I'm thinking, Oh, they haven't figured out the monster AI yet or something. So does that make sense? Yeah. So like, it's very on, it's honest and blatant about what you're missing out on and why. Okay. But the, the levels themselves still feel like doable. You're not feeling like, Oh, I, oh yeah. Because it's a stealth game. I would worry about like oh what a, a route has been closed off to me, you know. There, it, it, it it's like thief. I'm I'm being honest when I keep comparing yeah. it to thief. There's multiple ways out of a building. 
And there's multiple ways out of a scenario or into a scenario. Um, the game is very good about those. It's not like they, they sacrifice any level design for the sake of it. Um, the sections where they are uh, blocked off for content are few and far between and are very blatant about it. It doesn't get in the way of the actual level design. Like if you play the fishery, you're going to completely enjoy the fishery and you'll understand everything about the game. Okay. Okay. And it feels like the mechanics feel complete as is like, Everything that I would have seen in the demo is going to be there in the full game. I, I think what took five years um, was the gameplay. Does that make sense? Yeah, getting the getting the level design just right is something that's like very paramount for a game like this. Yeah, yes, like they, they basically wanted to get it right before they released any sort of real thing to it. So now they've gotten it right and now now it's just sort of adding to it time so that's where we're at i'm excited by it i would recommend it so even then um if you're if you're hesitant on amount of content just wait a little bit they'll add more so there we go right on right on well we're clipping through these titles um that's okay we, we don't have to have two and a half hour episodes every time Murph. yeah well you know i get lonesome and you're always bringing on <laughs> okay. you're always bringing on your guests and stuff We, you know it's it's just good when it's it's you and me. What was that? Yes, it did. Does Yakuza Four have guests? Uh, yes, actually. Uh, Tell me about so it. So we're bringing back the Yakuza Minute. I was uh I was off it for a long time for a hot minute there. Uh, but I heard you were talking shit, so <laughs> I decided to buckle down and uh, close close this one out. You ain't done with the franchise. I, no. I'm pretty sure it doesn't stop at four. And also, also right. yesterday, uh, S- uh, Sega announced like five more games <laughs> releasing in the next two years. But some of them are remakes of games you otherwise wouldn't have been able to. That's play. right. They're porting over one of the uh, one of the games set like the period piece games and the Edo uh, period of Japan. That's kind of exciting. I'm excited by those. I'm intrigued. Yeah, I feel a little bad because I was keeping tabs on a fan translation. That was nearing completion, and now it's kind of like, oh, well then. <laughs> yeah, well, but but honestly, that's a that's a good you know that's a good thing, and honestly, they can still be separate from. I'm sure the remake is going to change things, mm-hmm. so it's whatever. Yeah, so Yakuza Four. Um, right now, this is my favorite game in the franchise by by quite a bit. Why? So. Every time with Yakuza, I've been like, boy, I enjoy the writing. I enjoy, well, the gameplay's kind of hit or miss, but what really kills it is the pacing. You know, it will dangle a plot thread in front of you and then have like two different side characters come up and be like, hey, come play my side content before you can engage with the plot further. Uh, Like literally in Yakuza 2, there's a moment where uh, Kiryu's adopted daughter has been kidnapped and you got to rush to save her. And as you're rushing, a guy stops you and says, like, hey, Kiryu, uh, if you got a minute, come check out our, our blood coliseum where you can engage in death matches. <laughs> and yeah. Kiryu's like, hmm, that's very interesting. I will check it out later. <laughs> um, God. <laughs> uh, Yakuza 4 uh, solves this problem by having four protagonists that you play in sequence. So Kiryu is actually the last character you play in this game, and it sets up three completely new characters. Is that good? Yes. Um, so you start with uh, a money lender who's got a heart of gold. He is literally Spike Spiegel 
in the fact that he is played by Spike Spiegel's voice actor. <laughs> and Okay. Isn't that isn't that a famous guy? Yeah. Aren't you the voice actor guy? Not Aren't for, you supposed to know? Not that? for Japanese VAs. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yakuza doesn't have an English dub except for the first PS2 game. Um, okay. Um, but he's a very uh, fun and immediately likable character. He's like this guy with like a million dollars that worked his way up from like homelessness. Uh, and it ties into the first game. He got rich off events of in the first game, which is very interesting. Um, but he like basically lends out money to people with no interest rate after they prove they're a good person by doing a task for him. That's kind of cool. Yeah, he's a very cool character. Um, and then, so you play through his storyline, and that's done in like five hours. So it's a very nice, tight pace. And even though they still do that thing of like, you know, you go to investigate a story mission, and then it will like put some side content from your face, that, that stuff gets over real quick. In fact, you can say like, do you want to engage with this now, or do you want to keep like playing the story? And you can click yes or no. That is such a relief for this franchise. Yeah. And then you have a second character who's, like, a death row inmate uh, who's introduced in this pretty badass scene where he, like, does a hit on 18 other dudes, and that's why he's on death row. Um, but he learns that, a like, someone who's tied to the ongoing conflict in this game may have betrayed him in the past, so he breaks out of prison to go investigate. Um, and he has, like, one of the most, like, heart-wrenching scenes I've seen in a video game recently where he goes to the aforementioned, like, uh, he has to do one of the aforementioned death matches, and he beats his opponent, and the entire crowd's like, come on, you, you killed all those guys 18 years ago, don't you want to, like, kill this guy? And he's like, fucking no, that haunts me. <laughs> it's, you know, I'm, I'm downplaying it, but genuinely, it was like a heartbreaking scene. I was, like, almost crying. Um damn well let me let me ask now that you've mentioned two of them mm -hmm. um gameplay wise are they fundamentally different like do the different characters offer different levels or different experiences beyond story yes and that's one of the strongest features of the game so that first guy you're playing he's a money like in previous games you're playing kiryu he's a yakuza so he just gets like assaulted on the street that's how like the random fights happen the first guy you're playing he's a money lender so he's just like a civilian no one's really messing with him and so he has just like free roam of the city um but the second guy you play he's an escaped death row inmate so he can't actually walk the streets because there's cops everywhere that will chase him down. So he actually have to move around. He moves through like homeless camps and through the sewer systems and engages with oh, like wow. completely different characters and shops and things. And then the third character, he's a cop um, investigating the death of his father. And he's, um, I, I don't think they've explicitly said if he's an immigrant or something, but he's a polygot. He speaks like Korean, Tagalog, Chinese. Um, so he interacts with Little Asia, which is like this segment of like back alleys with immigrant uh, restaurants and things. So shops and things that other characters couldn't interact with because they can't speak the language, he can. So he gets like exclusive shops, exclusive restaurants to go to, exclusive activities, because he can interact with the uh, rest of the populace. And also, because that third character is a cop, again, no, you don't get, like, randomly assaulted on the street. Instead, you can investigate, like, robberies and stuff happening in the area and go make your money. Instead, you can harass people. Well, I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think 
There is a car- there is a civilian that d- they don't quite say all cops are bastards, but they say something like approximate. Um, They're all pigs at the very least. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then finally you get to play as Kiryu, who has like the most side content to do, um, but also his story segment's pretty short as well. When you finally get to him, that's when like the shit is hitting the like the most shit is hitting the fan. And he's just off in Okinawa, which he ended in like Yakuza Three, running his orphanage. So it's like, all right, we need to we need to call in the cavalry. We need to get Kiryu back. Um, <laughs> we need you back. Yeah, and, it would be the start to any other game. Well, that was the start to all the other games. It's like every game ends with <laughs> Kiryu retiring, and then every game starts with him being pulled back because something's going down. But it because this game doesn't get to Kiryu getting pulled back until like hour fifteen. It feels earned by the narrative. Gotcha. And then and then it's like a glory moment where it's like, oh, he's back. Yeah. And then, like, as far as the narrative, um, this one's also great. I won't get into too many details, but this is, like, the first one that's, like, wholly just about the Yakuza, which is strange to say. The previous games would, like, start with a Yakuza plot, like, feuding, like, crime families and things. But then the last act, it would be like, and also the Illuminati is involved. And you're like, huh? Um, <laughs> literally, like, yeah. As Illuminatis do. Yeah, but this one's strictly just about, like, the, the competing crime families and, like, the four characters' relations to them. Um, and it's gotcha. it's great. I love it. I think this one is, like, the first one that I would plonk in the S tier. Okay, there we go. Uh, do you consider yourself already a fan of the franchise? I'm... You know, I I actually wouldn't so far. Like, like I like the games, you know, but it's also they've got they they've got problems that are very antithetical to to Murph, um, you know, with the aforementioned pacing issues, um, or just like the combat. I don't find that engaging. It's kind of a button masher. Um, all all the character, all four protagonists play very differently in the combat too. Um, like that, that death row inmate, he's a big, slow bruiser, so he can charge up like heavy attacks and stuff, but he's not that quick. And then that cop character, he's got very little health, but he can, um, he has like a, a parry system. So you got to get good at like timed blocks and things. And then also he's a grappler that can like arrest people or break their wrists with arm bars and things. So you play him completely differently. Um, yeah, and you know what? I was going back. Like the last one I played was Yakuza Three, and I think, I think that left a much more worse taste in my mouth than I cared to admit. Um, granted, by the fact it took me three months to get to the next game, and Yakuza Three, I think is I I think I said that was a C tier. Um, I'm gonna knock that down to a D because as I was playing Four, I was like. Wait, what even happened in Yakuza 3? All I can remember are the orphanage shenanigans, which are the parts I hated. I can't remember the plot anything past that. Um, oh, God. Which is an issue, because if you go back and listen to the episode where I talk about Yakuza 3, I was like, oh, once you get past the orphanage stuff, the plot gets really good. But now I can't recall, I can't even recall what happened. Uh-oh. Well... Uh, yikes are you ex- what, what are you excited for what's the next one yeah um no i think actually i move on to uh dead souls okay what is that that is a ps3 spin-off 
that's Yakuza, but it's a what-if zombie scenario. I'm I'm mildly intrigued uh, to see where they go with that. Um, I see it also has okay. four other, like, four protagonists who, that are all sourced from the uh, previous games. So that will be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like a good what-if scenario. We, you don't see many what-if games, you know? Yo, one of my favorites, this is going to sound so stupid, is Dead Rising uh, off the record. So stupid, but oh. I think Frank West is, like, essential to Dead Rising. Yeah, that's so the I one that, like, it completely so rewrites true. Dead Rising 2, but you play as Frank West. Yes, yes. 100% worth it every time. I think those, like, I'm I'm totally fine with DLC. They're like, oh, the same story, but, like, a different protagonist. Well, well to... To not be fair, it was released as a separate game. Ah, I see. It's one of those scenarios. Uh, They they added some new content, but uh, I just enjoy the game still. So whatever. Um, Are we all ready ready for the variety minute? I I think we are. I think we're pros at this now. Uh, this week's Variety Minute is romance elements in games that are specifically non-romance games. Yes. Um, so, do- In honor of Doki Doki Literature Club, <laughs> yeah. which we're not going to spoil just yet, but may match this theme. So do we just want to, like, rename this the Bioware Minute, or... <laughs> um, we could... I mean, there's other, there's other games that do it. There's a there's a lot of RPGs. What I don't like is how Bioware infected other RPGs. Like Fallout was like, oh, we need our companions yeah. to be romanceable now. I'm like, why'd you do this? Mm-hmm. What, what happened? Yeah, like I was trying to think, like what? I'm I sat there thinking, is there a single Bethesda RPG where I was like, boy, I I definitely did a romance in that game, and I was like, I think I got unfortunately married. Fallout Four. Unfortunately, but I never romanced anyone in I, Fallout 4. I think I got married in Skyrim, but that was just to see like the Hearth Home content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's way less uh, impressive. It, that kind of reminded me of Fable. If you ever played Fable and you just get like a random NPC wife, yeah, it's like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but Bioware was really focused on the ability to develop uh, relationships with characters and the things it, i remember like bastila in knights of the old republic was like the first one i was like what yeah well like mass effect landed them in hot water because that was like it was all about the sex scenes you know it's like oh, oh my god. god you can see the shadow of someone's ass crack video games are too mature now murph i know is, is mass effect even rated in oh it has to be it absolutely has to be is it yeah there's like Is blood it? and swearing and people are but the blood's like purple blood not if you shoot a uh, a human <laughs> i guess that's right anyways um what what were your favorite uh favorite romanceable options in mass effect um let me well so here's the thing i i i think i said this no i don't think i ever said this on the podcast um but i have played through every mass effect and dragon age 
enough times to do every potential like choice, including romance options. Okay. And so the answer is Garrus, right? Uh, yes, correct. Absolutely. Because I was sitting there thinking, like, <laughs> who is the best Bioware romance? And I was terrified because I was like, no matter what I say, there will be judgment thrown upon me. And then I was like, it's Garrus. yeah, it's Garrus. It's 100% Garrus. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's, he's a good guy. I don't know what to tell you, man. Yeah. And he's he's into you, which is good. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's 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 not a cop. He 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 turns away from being a cop after one. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he and like he, a uh, renegade. He compliments your head know. fringe, and the birth of your yep. hips. Well, that, that's what a gentleman. Yeah, you, know? you haven't played any Dragon Ages, right? N- uh, no. Okay, I think on average Dragon Age romances feel better than Mass Effect ones, and that's because Dragon Age gets away with a lot more like diverse character moralities and types mm-hmm. whereas like in mass effect you're always playing it's always like even in two which is about like sort of a, a mercenary team but it's always like military still but i think like in dragon age i really liked romancing zevrin and dragon age origins uh two has well actually two all the characters i want to romance are locked off like aveline so I won't go into that. Well, l- let me ask you, what what exactly are you looking for? Like, what what do you think makes a... Because, like, part of me is like, oh, man, these things are fucking forced. Like, yes. especially when it comes to Bioware and some of the later stuff. So, like, wh- what makes it good? I think the key to, like, what Bioware does is... And this is definitely forced. This is 100% forced. But it makes it feel like the romance is part of not only your character's arc but the character you're romancing's arc. You know, like, by by me shacking up with Thane in Mass Effect 2, I have given him closure over his terminal illness and dead wife. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he was able to get over it by uh, fucking. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, in something like Dragon Age 2, I remember a lot of people gave them heat because... It was, everything was tied to, like, your companionship, like, friendship meter. And the moment that meter even got, like, a little high, your character, like, the in, the character, the party members would be like, all right, so we're dating now, right? And the options are, like, yes or, like, no, go away. How dare you think that? <laughs> There's no easy way to break it to Yeah. Me. And if you, like, say no, then their approval, like, plummets. <laughs> it's like, well, what was I, I can't, what was I meant to do? Um, I I wanted to mention something away from Bioware. You you think Bioware is the only option? That's not true. Uh, dating sim stuff fucked up a uh, Fire Emblem and ruined the franchise, and also uh, ruined Persona. So well, I mean, you know. Now, well, I mean, I can I I find that contentious because I came in on that <laughs> Fire just, Emblem. I was just being fiery, yeah. you know. I was being controversial. I think the look, I like I the the first Fire Emblem game I played was Sacred Stones, but I never finished that. But I got into the franchise with Awakening, which is where they started doing the dating sim stuff. And I think Awakening gets a pass because it ties the datings, like the marriages and stuff into the actual plot with like the children units. I agree. I think that stuff's cool. It, it, I think the problem is like when you get to like three houses, 
And it's like, okay. Well. Yeah. Well, Three Houses has like the problem of you being a teacher. Um, yes. Yeah. But I guess there is that time skip, although all the characters still call you professor, which is a problem. Yeah, the time skip doesn't really give a, an excuse. I'm going to be honest. It, like, l- let's imagine now that your high school teacher calls you up and says, hey, Murph, mm-hmm. I always liked you. You want to you wanna go out for some coffee? You, you should still probably say no, and it's unethical for them to At do the that. very least, they give you other teachers to date, and they give themselves some leeway by saying, like, oh, all the characters are also, like, of age. Yeah. Like, some of them are, like, 25. So, um, but I think it's, I yeah. think what Fire Emblem, um, I'll defend the dating sim elements to a degree because a lot of people get caught up in, like, oh, who you can date, but to me, the appeal of Fire Emblem is, like, playing matchmaker. Uh, pairing them, like, shipping. Yeah. It's the shipping. Yeah, because there's way more opportunities for shipping than there are for you shacking up with someone. And yes. I think, you know, something like Mass Effect has, like, three to six dateable options per game, whereas in Fire Emblem, it's literally every other unit that you are not directly related to sometimes. Yeah, but, like, I mean, I think that's also specifically, I don't know all of the modern ones, but, like, specifically Awakening does that. I don't think, I think Three Houses has, like, just, like, paired units that, like, naturally uh, level up their ranks together or something. Maybe you can, uh, I I know you can pair them, I know you can pair two characters together and get unique cutscenes from them, but I don't necessarily think you can pair them in the romance way. Yes, and that's what Three Houses, um, uh, this this definitely annoys me. Three houses, three houses. You can get up to like A rank, but there's no S rank. Instead, once you yeah. get once you beat the game and it's showing the credits, it will be like, oh, Edelgard married Dorothea, and I was like, oh, is that right? I I didn't see them hooking up together. Um, I, yeah, what, I didn't see this. What coming. influenced this? <laughs> um, yeah. And that, that gets a little weird. And also, it's not always explicitly, like, a romance. There's definitely ones, I recall, where it's like, oh, they, you know, they were the best of friends until the day they died. And stuff like that. Yeah. Um, for, like, relationships um, that aren't explicitly romantic. It, it, it That kind of rubs me the wrong way. Because, like I said, I like playing the matchmaker. I, I like writing the romance story in my head. Well, if you if you want me to go ahead and highlight something here. Sure. Um and this is something this is my uh, opinion like regarding dating sims. Be, be sure to bookmark this. But I think a lot of those oh they just became best friends things is a deliberate attempt by um developers or publishers to avoid homosexuality. Yeah. Um, but well, Fire Emblem can three houses at the very least could get pretty gay. But that's just because they had more characters that could be gay, you know? Yeah, but I don't think they ever, like, explicitly, like, I, I think it was always, like... Oh, no, no, like... like get to life Where I level. said, like, Edelgard and Dorothea hook up, that's definitely, like, the ending I got. Like, Edelgard nice. becomes queen. Good, good for them. Yeah. I just remember there was a side quest in Three Houses about a guy, and you're meant to think that he has like a crush on another guy, but then they completely backtrack. There, on that. there like is like completely... a lot of that. like Fates, the one in between Three Houses yes. and Wait. Fates was was bad about that. Fates literally has a character yeah. that's a girl that like gets flustered around every other girl and calls them cuties, yeah. and yeah. that's just because her dad's like that. <laughs> is the explanation yeah. and you got to cure her gay 
Yeah. Bioware is pretty good about LGBT representation um, mm-hmm. in their stuff. Um, so that's that's thumbs up there. Um, you, you know what? You know what gets me? And this is actually like this is going into the Persona stuff. Have you played Persona games? Not a one, but I know Persona 5 has some real problematic romance options. There are. Um, yeah, yeah. It just in general, I think Persona was like definitely one of those ones where um, there's a lot of problems still. Um, I remember, oh my God, I can't believe I don't remember names right now. But Persona 4 had a character who was like signaled as gay, but it was like a problem in a way like they 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 sort of tried to avoid it um because a lot of it was like accepting the dark side of yourself or whatever mm-hmm. and and they they tiptoed around the the gay aspect of this character at all like they never paid it lip service or anything like that um persona 5 stuff comes more in line with uh dating teachers had there's like a, an entire subplot um where you could date your um english teacher and she's like a maid because she can't afford to work oh her, dear uh, that's a lot normal of job yeah it's really bad and and what's so fucked Hold up on. wait i watched a friend play the first chapter of this isn't the first like mission of persona one to like punish a teacher that's diddling students yeah persona five's first uh like person like the first like person you have to change or like the mental prison you have to break through or whatever is a guy named Kamashita who's like a gym teacher who does like sexually abuse his students so like there's a double standard there where it's like oh mm. this guy is obviously bad and that guy is bad don't get me wrong but then it's like oh for the player character the player character can enjoy uh this uh hot teacher yeah well that's because the hot teacher is a woman Oh yes, yep. That, well, that's where we're. Um, yeah. Boy, we're. <laughs> um. So I like Persona. I promise, but yeah, no, it's a problem. I I think I think dating elements fucked it up. I I, I do. So let it, me ask it, this: What do you feel like when there are romance mechanics in a game? It always seemed to be tied to like you know choosing to support that character in like dialogue trees or giving them gifts or what have you. Um. Do you like? How do I want to phrase this? It just feels so gamified, doesn't it? What's like, wow. what's like the game you feel has like the best representation of quote unquote romance, um, or have have developers is... not tapped into that gene yet? Uh, you know, it's it's hard. Honestly, this may go into dating sim stuff, or mm-hmm. it may go into visual novel stuff where they develop the characters properly. I think the answer to your question is, is a romance feels natural if it's developed properly in story, or if you're talking about mechanics, doesn't feel like there is a, a, a singular outcome. You know, there's an example here of where I think it's bad is Harvest Moon. Um, yeah. Harvest Moon is like, oh, you've got this girl here or this guy here. And they like blueberries and daisies. It's like, all right, I guess I'm bringing them a shipment of blueberries and daisies every single day. Yes. And then you give them blueberries and daisies every single day. And then two months later, they're in love with you and say, yes, I'll marry you. Mm-hmm. Um, if only. And then they stop being a character. 
and then they stop being a character exactly whereas um i think something more realistic would would probably be something more guided and scripted in and making it more about the characters and stuff so bioware kind of gets it close but then but then the issue is forcing it into a relationship you don't need so like when i think of the issue with bioware is i think i don't need a romance here uh, like new fallout new vegas is really good about its companions yeah um fallout new vegas his companions have sexuality and a lot of them are homosexual and gay um and there's a lot of great representation and their own opinions about that stuff and you can ask them about their sexuality but there's not a companion there's not a companion you can romance there's none mm -hmm. of that that's not what's important to you and your party yeah and I, I love that. That's, That's just fantastic. for the player to headcanon. <laughs> yeah. If, if you want to headcanon, so be it. But like sexuality is an important part of a person's identity, but it doesn't necessarily need to be a game mechanic in every RPG. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think. In Fallout 4, isn't it like literally you, you initiate by telling your companion like to do something and, and directing them at the bed or something? <laughs> Yeah, I think you can do that. I'm pretty sure. That's yes. so funny. I'm pretty sure that's how you initiate uh, a well rest or something. I don't remember off the top. Um, Something like Dragon Age, uh, to go back to that, I think that does something real interesting with the romance because in a lot of Dragon Age games, like, you know, you're making like big world changing decisions or like big political decisions and all of your companions have like an opinion on that and in some cases if you like do too many choices that they disapprove of they'll leave the party um which includes yeah. like romance options so if you're romancing like liliana in dragon age origins who's like like the the peppy redhead who's all about jesus and you do things that are very yeah. anti-jesus then you know what you're probably not going to romance her no matter how many like gifts you give her or how many like times you agree with her in dialogues it's kind of hard to actually fall in love with someone you're completely politically against yeah or ideologically opposed to mm -hmm. it's a little hard yeah it's it's one of those reasons why uh people who wear maga hats don't understand why nobody wants to talk to them. <laughs> it's one of those things you know anyways continue oh no that was that was the extent of it so i think like the dragon age games definitely <laughs> tap into something at least narratively with the romance rather than it, than it just being like gamified especially in later entries where they took away the ability to like give gifts to compensate for lost approval well i mean this okay so the ultimate answer to your question and this will tie into our game of the week is romance and love is not a skinner box do you know what a Skinner box is? I I've used the phrase to sound smart. It's a it's a it's an operant conditioning chamber. You put in you put in blueberries and daisies. Yeah. Yes. And and that's the issue is is that game mechanics are about that reward and outcome. It it, it pretends there is a way to just uh play a game and fall in and have someone fall in love with you yeah you're on that pickup artistry yeah i think like yeah, you're on you're on the pickup artistry game you know yeah, like exactly. i like all the bioware games and you know i will never snub my nose at any romance mechanics in a game but i guess in a more idealized world there wouldn't be such a thing as like guides on how to romance a character it would be more intuitive yes 
absolutely and that that would be my answer is maybe there maybe there isn't a way um yeah other than i guess developing a real online mmo or relationship with someone else or something who knows yeah until we can uh, make fully functioning sentient ai with that i suppose we should go to our game of the week i mean sure yeah (laughs) i don't know why we would but yeah good enough segue Brogan from the editing room and I am here to uh because I just realized during this edit I should probably say this there I'm going to give a trigger warning for this episode in case you didn't already know by the uh title of the game or by the game and by everything else this game does feature um things that could lead to triggering specifically in terms of gore uh mutilation self-harm or suicide so um you should definitely be warned and if you are not comfortable um i i am i'm sorry you can skip ahead to the timestamp for the plugs i have actually added the plugs to the very end of this uh timestamp which i don't normally do so thank you all for listening all right so this this week's game of the week is doki doki literature club uh Doki Doki Literature Club is a 2017 PC visual novel by Team Salvato, led by Dan Salvato. Uh, You play as a protagonist who you name. Um, He joins a literature club to befriend and hopefully date four nice anime girls. Sayori is your best friend and neighbor. Yuri is a shy bookish girl with an affinity for large fantasy novels and horror. Uh, Natsuki is a manga enjoyer and has a tiny frame and is super sundari. And Monica is the club president who is too perfect for you in every way. Uh, But this game turns out to be a little bit less of a dating sim and a little bit more like a horror game as we play into it. Um, No spoilers for this, but Murph, what did you think about the game? I, um, I, I got this like pretty close to when it first came out and... Um, I, I, I love it a lot. I think it's so, I guess clever isn't really the word I use because on on the second playthrough, this is the first time I've played it again. in like, I guess since it came out, um, I was like, okay, it's not as like inventive and clever as I thought. And maybe that's because I have more exposure to media over the course of five years. 
But I think it's definitely yeah. what it tries to do. It does exceptionally well. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's very good about lulling you into a false sense of security and then like pulling the rug out from under you. I agree. I agree. Um, and I think uh, it's, it's one of those things where I realize playing it this time around, I think the first time I played it, I saw a lot of the contempt and a lot of, and and this time around I saw a lot of the fan it's it's very clear that he is of two minds of the genre and of being an anime fan and mm-hmm. the tropes and the clichés and how and how welcoming they can be but also how ridiculous they are and dehumanizing almost so yeah so are we you, you said no spoilers are we not well, we can spoil now if I you guess want. like yeah. here here's what I'll say like if you have never played this game um like i would this is something i would recommend people go play like you know you're gonna get squeamish because you know trigger warning this game does deal with like a lot of like suicide and graphic imagery uh both on screen and in text um but you can get through it pretty quick and i i think you'll be richer for the experience and the base game is free. The, ba- the base game is the free. plus version. Yeah. But the base game is free. And also maybe um, a little bit superior, but we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Don't worry. We'll talk about it. Um. So, um, yeah. like. So now the spoiler gates are open. It's a horror game and Monica is a sentient AI. There we go. We yeah. Yeah. Like Monica, it deliberately like fucks with the game in order to try and add herself as one of the romance options and the end result is the game breaking down, the characters doing some really horrific things, and um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, let me ask you real quick: How many visual novels or um, dating sims have you actually played? Like actual in the genre? In the genre, I guess visual novels. Whenever I hear there's like a popular one out, I'll go seek it out, but generally not really i guess i'm more prone to watch to watching those be played rather than buying them playing them myself because i I like it when like you know especially when it's like a let's play with several different people and they all are doing like different little voices and having their own little commentary on the plot yes i enjoy that that's fair as like a communal experience as far as like getting a visual novel and going through it solo um not really especially not dating sims um, I said this in, like, the Quarry episode I did with uh, Fru and David, because I played an indie dating sim on that. And I was like, I don't have a lot of exposure. I don't have exposure to, like, legitimate versions of this genre, you know? Would you, like, because you want to consider Doki Doki Literature Club, like, a legitimate dating sim. No. No, I wouldn't. But I, I, I would say that there's elements of it that are absolutely like the thing i was gonna say is like and i i the only prep i did for this i've played dating sims before but we're not gonna we're not gonna name drop dating sims in no. in, in this podcast i will say i watched in prep for this the tim rogers action button reviews of uh tokimeki memorial okay and uh and what was interesting about this was i when i watched it he didn't play Doki Doki Literature Club, even though everyone asked him to. Mm-hmm. I saw huge parallels, and I'm sure everyone else did, with Shiori Fujisan and Monica. And when I heard the PAX, I, I listened to your PAX 20, 2022 uh, 
Dan Salvato uh, did a panel and he talked about Monica's inspiration being that final girl or sort of the girl that's too perfect. Yeah. Um, that makes completely sense within the genre. Yeah. Whereas there is there is a hard girl that is very difficult to uh, win the affection of. So you, you're meant to play the other girls first. And you're supposed to like figure out how they work. And then you could go for the difficult girl. And in that way, it maintains this. Because Sayori is absolutely in love with you. Mm-hmm. And then as you go through... Monica's essentially the final boss. It's just a completely inverted horror, you know, stroke instead of yeah, because uh, it's kind of like, else. well, what if the final girl didn't want to be so final, you know? Yes, exactly. Um, and I um, think that like, so I guess just full disclosure for the audience. Um, the first time I played this game, I got I got to what is effectively called Act Three where Monica deletes everything in the game but herself. And then, you know, you're supposed to go into the game's files and delete her to get the ending. Um, I never did that because I was satisfied with that ending, as is. Why? I guess, I don't know. I guess I felt sorry for her. I guess if you accept the her logic that she's the only sentient being in the game, I was like, well, you know, why not ha- let her have this? And also, I think, like, the ending Murph. you get with deleting her isn't that satisfying. Murph. Uh-huh. These takes. I'm dying. I'm dying, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You know when you turn the game off, she's in immense pain, Yeah, right? well, yeah, and she does say that. <laughs> um. So, like, when she's alive, but you turn the game off, she goes, Where have you been? I've I've been in immense torture. Don't turn the game off, please. Yeah, but then eventually she says, I can get used to it. The only thing that bothers me is the being alone with my thoughts. Murph, what is... Okay, we're probably reel it back. Maybe we can talk about the ending and stuff in a little bit. I'm let's, just saying that because refocus. I know I know from, from both Dan Silvato's panel and speaking with other fans of the game, this does, I guess, this colors my judgment. I th- I think it's coloring mine too. No, I'm just kidding. Um, let's let's reel it back to the the base stuff yeah. first. So so let's talk about the the other three girls and let's talk about the poem mechanics. Mm-hmm. So like the game has you play through what is like theoretically the base game, like until you sure. get to a particular ending point, then it restarts. Um. And that's when it starts, like, breaking down. And that's when all the horror elements start coming in. So you spend, like, jeez, maybe, like, I think I spent two hours in what is Act 1. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a long section. And I, I, and I enjoy that buildup because it's a slow burn. And it's very clear if you're looking for it that there are hints that it's a horror game. There, like, there are negative words when you do the poems, for instance. Yeah. Like they, they have... They have dark words for that, and like Monica will let some things slip once. Let in me a ask while. you this: Did you know uh, the twist going in? I did. Okay. I was already spoiled by that point. I'm always spoiled. I was trying to remember because I remember I got into this game because there was like a post going around where it shows like the Steam page where it's like Doki Doki Literature Club, and then the tags are like psychological horror and gore, and people are like something's up, and then like that post that post expanded to people being like oh my god you have to play this go in completely blind 
So I think I went in completely blind, but also it wasn't surprising to me when the meta stuff started happening. And it, it occurred to me, I think I clued in like immediately from Monica's first poem, what was up with her. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, okay, so I guess I guess to fully explain where I was at, I knew it was a horror game yeah. immediately. It, and the game, the game actually warns you beforehand, even the base game tells you, hey, there's gore and stuff. Yeah, in this there's game. like uh, and in the plus version even adds in like a, a setting where it will you can toggle it to give you warnings like heads up the next scene is gonna be real freaky. Yeah, exactly. But there's there's no reason why you would go in completely blind and actually think it's no. A, but like uh, knowing what the suit. horror is, because I know I saw yes. like let's plays that are like, oh my, the twist is gonna be that they're all vampires and they're gonna sacrifice you That's so stupid. or something. Oh my god. You know, no, but, you're waiting uh, for the other shoe to drop, but you don't. You're you're kind of surprised how that shoe dropping manifests. I I didn't know about Monica being sentient. No, yeah. Um, but yes, the poems made it clear, and there's there's times where Monica makes it obvious before the reveal. Let's just put it like that, especially by Act I mean, Two. Yeah. Well, she even um, says like, she even says in Act Three, like I, you know, I was dropping all these hints trying to get you to notice, yes. but the game wouldn't let you do anything with me yes um i think one of the most explicit moments like i think like the out and out moment is is like hello can anybody hear me when she's giving the tip yeah like it's like the last tip is like hey just fuck the tip can you i'm talking to you can you or well i mean did um, you ever look in the game files uh yes i did okay um but what are you specifically talking about i mean she leaves a file like when sayori is deleted it generates an error log. And if you look at the text for that error yes. log at the bottom, it's like, arg, she's causing so many problems. I might as well just delete her. I might as well just get rid of her completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah I saw that. Yeah. Um, I didn't see that my first run. Oh, uh, once, I, once I clued into that, I was constantly checking the files. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, um, that, that stuff's super fun. And I like, I like the character dynamics. They don't... What what's nice is he like even though they are all cliches, they're all very like they're still nice. Yeah, they're still likable. Like the game doesn't work if you don't like the characters. If you don't exactly. get invested in the plot of the literature club and the build up to like the school festival, then nothing in Act Two lands because you don't like because Act 2 relies on you knowing what's going to happen in the plot. That way you can recognize how it gets screwed up. Yeah. Um, uh, how, how do you feel it performs with, regarding mental illness? Specifically because Sayori has uh, active depression and she does commit suicide. Um, yeah. And you can't stop it. No. And, and then also when we get into act two, Yuri does self-harm. Yeah. Um, I think so. It's meant to be very off-putting and scary. And yeah. So what, I, I think like uh, in Dan Salvato's PAX panel, he said something that like the cruelest thing the game does is after you find Sayori hanging it, like it, it tries to make you think that you could have done something differently, you know? And that, like, the, the main character monologues to himself, like, oh, my, if I had just walked her home, if I had just spent time with her, or if you're actively romancing Sayori, it's like, oh, if I hadn't, like, put so much emotional investment in her and made her, like, yeah. worry about me, this could have been avoided. But there's no way to avoid it. Um, yeah. And sort of, like, I think that 
that moment is still like even when I played it this time, knowing it was going to happen, it was still it's still like a gut punch, you know, to see her hanging there, and that's yeah. part of like because it's so abrupt and so sudden, um, how it just hard cuts mm-hmm. to her hanging from the ceiling. I think that is like this. I I would say is probably the scariest moment in the full on like I guess reveal of the genre and like the shock. Uh, like I don't think the Yuri stuff works for me very much at all. Personally. No, Yuri is more just overall terrifying. She's effectively like <laughs> the antagonist of Act Two. You know, yeah. um, even though yeah. it's like all Monica behind the scenes, she's working the horror in through Yuri. Uh, and yeah. Natsuki's there. <laughs> Yeah, um, uh, but like for me, the the horror shock loses everything after Sayori's death. Um, I think the meta the me, the the meta works partially, but like for Yuri, I I think possibly it's just the gore. I'm not like a huge person that like gets engaged in the horror of the gore. I think the other effective horror mo- moments for me are like when it does the um. When it does the eyes or the mouth changes, I think those are interesting. Yeah, um, those are where, where they would shift to real eyes or moving eyes, um, in in unsettling ways. Those are those are cool horror moments. Yeah, when I was um, when when we decided on playing this, I was like, okay, I I can get through most of the game, but fuck, man, I'm so terrified of seeing Yuri's realistic human eyes again. Especially that like like that jump scare where she's like looking at you from the other side of the poem. Um, yeah. But this time around, I was like, "Oh, yeah, this isn't scary at all. In fact, it looks kind of goofy." Yes, yeah, that's that's where I come from. And I found, um, I guess there, there are some scenes that are either like they don't trigger, um, depending on like who you go for in Act Two and the order like you go for them in. Like if you do a poem for Natsuki day one, and then a poem for Yuri day two, you get different scenes. Because, like, to me, the scariest scene in the first playthrough is the one where it's uh, you and Yuri out in the hall and Monica starts, like, manifesting behind her. Yes, I, I got that this time. I got this. this yeah, I, I, I played through this, and I was like, was that cut for the plus release? But no, I guess I just did. Uh, I was focusing on Natsuki this time. Um which means I got uh, yeah. some jump scares related to her. Like, have you ever seen Natsuki breaking her neck? No. Oh, yeah. Like, in the, after the, the final poem, it will, like, come down and she'll have, like, her face all messed up. And then she'll snap her neck like a Slim Jim and jump at the camera. And then it goes back to normal. So, some of those are random. Some of those are random chants. I don't know which ones, but I know what you're talking about. Because do, you do always get the uh, bad Natsuki face. Where it's like the blank eyes. And yeah, stuff. yeah, or her um, eyes exploding. If you've seen that one, yes. that one's really rare. Yeah. Um, to to refocus, um, h- how do you feel it does regarding um, the commentary? Like, how do you feel about the player character? Let's how ha- let's say that. Um. So this time I went for the good ending, which means in Act One okay. you have to save Scum and go through like each girl's arc perfectly. Um. And so I saw, like, more of this game than I ever had before. And the main, my main takeaway is that, like, the main character's kind of insufferable. Because <laughs> yeah. he's one of those, like, absolutely cardboard cut-out protagonists who just always knows the right thing to say. Yeah. Well, well you know what? You know what always gets me? And what got me this time? I was, I was trying to pick at certain lines of the game and try to reflect on them. And, like, it's... It's just one of those things in dating sims where 
the 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 other characters all these characters that are meant to like and literally designed and manufactured to love you Mm -hmm. they go like oh you're so caring yeah like i I remember when sayori falls out like she stumbles and falls out of the closet um he your character literally goes oh i wasn't paying attention to you and then she literally says oh you're always thinking of other people and it's a very just weird moment Mm -hmm. where it's like no i'm not my character is not thinking of anybody else he's only thinking of himself yeah and like you the player are thinking of the character because you are invested with getting the romance but the 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 main character the mc does not and i think like some play like some takes i've seen on this game forget that the mc is his own character unto himself there are six characters in the game the four main girls the mc and then you the player in a metatextual sense yeah and and i think to dan dan would disagree with that i think he said like it's a surrogate for the player i don't necessarily think that especially when I think a lot of times with visual novels and dating sims, the main character will say things that you don't agree with. And the real thing is, is that when you pursue different routes for different girls, the main character will completely change his uh, demeanor mm-hmm. to match the girl, um, which isn't necessarily how things actually work. Number one in real life or number two, like how we process things, you know? So I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I, I think, however, he is meant to be a reflection of the player. And I think when I first played this game, I thought it was super critical of the genre and the player. And in a way, it is when I was listening to the thing, it's clear that Dan is a fan of the genre, but he wanted to also point the finger at the player and laugh at them because you're, you're a loser who loves anime. You're a yeah. this and that, and you're ultimately playing a game to get girls to like you. You know, there was another example I cited to you before in private conversation where Yuri says in her first, after her first poem that there's a, there's a portion of it that's about ghosts, but it's not really about ghosts. It's about other things like people who are stuck in the past and can't let go. And that is for me, like part and parcel, like a big part of what a, a high school sim is. Yeah. The only reason why you'd want to go back to high school is if you want to go back to high school. Yeah. You, you want to be 17 again, starring Zac Efron. Yeah, you want to be 17 again, but you also want to be 17 again and not awkward. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to get the girl you you secretly liked in high school and shit. So there's a huge wish fulfillment fantasy to it. Yeah, I think the game know? definitely plays a lot with like the idea of obsession. Because in a yes. way, all the girls are uh, like very, even in like the base non-Monica fucked with version of the game, all the girls are like obsessed with you. Like those weekend visits yeah. with not Natsur- yuri uh, natsuki or yuri play out the same whether or not you're romancing them or not you know you still have like yuri sucking on your finger or not or you sucking on natsuki's finger which is like super strange if you're going like the sayori route yep yep and they force you into those positions too yeah what i was Um, what i was thinking about regarding the ending because like the good ending i guess is fine I don't really like the act for implication that like Monica's sentient because she's the club president. Um, And like the plus content we'll get into, which like, I guess expands on that. I just like the idea that Monica like became self-aware herself, you know, but like the moment Sayori's club president, then she becomes self-aware and it doesn't work for me. I think it would have worked better. Like what I really wanted this time around is, Rather than the credits being the game being deleted, they just delete the MC. 
Because ultimately, he's the thing causing all the problems, all the conflict between the girls. Yeah. And it literally becomes like the literature club was the friends we made along the way. I don't know necessarily if it's the 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 president role or whatever, but but I always get the normal ending, the bad ending, I guess, is the way you can say it. I think the reason why it becomes the good ending if you do all the routes is because it actively proves that you cared about the girls. Yeah. Um, In which I didn't. I didn't care about the girls enough to actually go through those endings or those routes. Yeah. So, yeah, bully on me. But that being said, um, that normal ending where Sayori becomes sentient and is also just as obsessed with you. That, okay, that's one of my issues is I think why I'm opposed to the keep Monica alive thing is very clearly after Monica goes, uh, after you delete her file, it's very obvious she changes. She completely understands the issue with everything. What happens is you delete the file and then she realizes that she fucked up. She wasn't a good leader. Yeah. She wasn't protecting her friends. So then she brings back her friends. But then the issue is Sayori is feeling the sentience and she is still just as obsessed with you. She is essentially just like Monica. It's a role. And there, I, I also saw a bit of dialogue in the Monica thing where it's like, it doesn't matter who, number one, she doesn't know who you are. She's like, are you a yeah. boy? Are you a girl? I don't know who you are. But then she's also like, it was, it was, it was always going to happen that I would be in love with you. And to me, those scenarios aren't love, right? Mm -hmm. So Monica's not in love with you. She's in love with you because she has to be, even if she is. Because you are the, you're the only other point of contact. You're, you're the only other point of contact. Exactly. It's, it's her only link to being real. Mm -hmm. It is the only possibility. Um, and for Sayori, it's it's that similar sort of, it doesn't matter if anyone else influences it or if there's another mystical force or whatever. It's, it's the leadership role and it is the idea that if I know nothing matters, um, the only thing that can possibly matter is this guy. And it doesn't matter how self-absorbed he is because Monica during her act three dialogue also makes it very clear that you're kind of probably fucked up. I mean, you're doing a dating sim. Do you even have a girlfriend? Yeah. Like she says shit like that. Mm -hmm. too. So like, it's very clearly like, Oh, I don't care. It doesn't matter anyways. I still love you. So it's like, oh, you know, maybe there's some issues going on here. Um, yeah. I think like with the good ending, Though, like, you, because in the bad ending, Sayori tries to do the same thing Monica does and delete everything but herself. Um, but then Monica, yes. the lingering will, comes in and just deletes the game to, to spare the player. Like, and, well, it's to spare the to spare the characters as well because she's like, oh, the literature club can't exist. Yeah, and that's like her moment of redemption, I guess. Um, but yeah. in the good ending, that doesn't happen. Effectively, Monica's last moments in the good ending are when you delete her. Which yeah. I don't, I, you know, it, it, that just seems weird to me, especially since that's the more uplifting ending. Like, the literature club will continue without you in that ending, just sans yeah. Monica. Monica doesn't get her happy ending. Which I don't, it just seems weird to me, given that, like, everything else seems to be like, oh, the, the real love was friendship. It, it feels like the game doesn't have a lot of sympathy for Monica. And to be fair, Monica does a lot of bad things. She literally... Oh my god, Murph. Did you catch the hanging joke? Yeah, yeah, I caught that this time. You better not leave Sayori hanging. No, she she says you left her hanging. Oh, yeah. Because she died. Yeah, because she hung herself that morning. Yes. Um. So, like, she's not a good person in those moments. But also, like, 
it, it goes into the obsession madness thing where it's like very clearly I, not her and yeah the redemption arc all works out the other thing i was going to say is like that ending credits when you listen to the lyrics the lyrics are about how um if you don't know how to love somebody you you know i don't know if she says let him go or something but the the point is is monica doesn't know how to love yeah because you know? her only you know before becoming sentient her only existence was as like the unobtainable girl and then once she becomes self-aware her, the only people she can interact with are literally like not artificial intelligences but virtual intelligences but npcs yeah. and that sort of just drives her crazy like in in yeah. act two when it's um when she's like oh let's make a decision on who you're gonna hang out with and yuri's like oh no i'm i'm making the choice for him and monica's just like it's like all right you know what i there's nothing i can do because she recognizes the futility she can't make herself an option in the game so the plus content sucks yeah i was getting to that i was i was getting to that the plus content sucks do you want to go ahead and complain about the plus content Uh, let me complain about the one thing before we talk about the big thing before we talk about the emails um let's talk about the actual side story so yeah so this was always i can't help but wonder if Dan Silvato underestimated either how good a writer he is or how these tropes are effective for a reason. But I've always gotten the vibe he was a little surprised that people, like, like the characters and want, like, non-horror-related media about them. Um, like, when I was uh, when I, at that PAX panel, um, he only had time for, like, one question because he just talked the entire time. And the the, fir- the one question was a guy going, like, would you ever be interested in doing, like, a slice-of-life anime with these characters? And he was like, no, I designed these characters for this specific kind of game. It wouldn't work as an anime. No. So um, the plus content, the side stories are just literally the characters minus the MC. It's the four girls interacting with each other in a series of pairs. Um, and it's just, like... No horror content whatsoever. It's like implied that this version of Monica isn't even sentient. Yeah. It's just I. It's just a little weird to me. It reads. It's something more I would see in like a fan game. Like one of the most popular Nexus mods is literally like Doki Doki Literature Club, the non-horror version. Yeah. Okay. I I said it to you um, before, and I I didn't catch the end of the panel, so I didn't hear him say no to that question it feels like the side content here was especially when we get to the emails felt like a sort of twofer hit where he wants to um provide the fans what they want and i think the issue is is the type of fans that love this game die hard and love the characters die hard are the same people he's trying to make yeah fun. the the same ones that it's going over their head the same people that like maybe enjoy Homelander on the boys and thinks he's a badass character for doing what he wants. Yes. Uh, and, and I mean, they they may be self-aware. It, I, I don't want to be unfair to them. And Dan Salvato may be one of those people, but the, but the issue is, is like, it's, it's not surprising to me that there is that type of person that seeks that to me, these, these characters are only real because of the conflict of the game. If these characters were their side story versions they're very two-dimensional. I found the side stories very boring. Yeah, I, I kind personally. of got that, too. Um, yeah. And, like, you know, I guess it's nice to see, like, in a game that gets, like, so 
about people's like worst selves coming to the fore. Um, mm-hmm. It is nice to see them be happy. Like that's what I was saying. Like that, that's what I wanted. Like the good ending to be is just it's just the four girls being happy without having to worry about yeah. the MC, um, which is yeah. effectively what this these side stories are. But yeah, it's also like it's weirdly too much and also not enough. If that makes sense, it's like yeah, there's six side stories exploring each pairing of girls, um, but also each of those has a part one and a part two. So it's just, it's a lot. And I got through four of them before I was like, I don't, I don't want to see any more. This isn't improving my understanding of the base game. And I'm not going to, maybe the last ones were really good or something. Those, those first four, because it's talking about the history of the literature. Yeah. And talks about like starting with Monica and she befriends Sayori and eventually Yuri joins and then Natsuki joins. It's the same story every time in which they don't know how to incorporate the new friend in and the new friend is scared because it's a literature club and they like this specific kind yeah. of thing. Yuri likes horror and fantasy. They, the other two don't or say Yuri likes poems and Monica doesn't like poems or Natsuki likes manga. No one else likes manga. Manga is not a real form of literature yeah. and it's the same story. And then there's like, Oh, every type of literature is okay. As long as it represents you. And I love you for who you are. And that is all awesome. And I agree with it. I've heard the story many times now. Yeah. I think if I would have like, cause here's the thing. I don't need plus content from Doki Doki literature club. I think the base game is exceptional on its own. I think adding to it, only makes it worse which we will get into with the other part of the plus content part of me wanted part of me wanted a little bit more refinement in base in terms of like making it feel more of a dating sim in the first like in the first act where Mm. it feels more like a proper route like because i think one of the things that clues you in is how forced it feels like by the time say yori is like super depressed you know something's wrong with the game yeah because you're not doing anything Mm -hmm. um especially since i go on the say yori route and it's also because it starts getting real heavy with that yes and it, it gets too heavy it gets too it gets too obvious i don't know necessarily if you need like more dialogue i think the issue may not be dialogue but maybe in like the re- different mechanics or in the different routes actually fleshing them out to feel more appropriate mm-hmm. like d- does it always have to be say yori that's the one that goes in act one versus this or that but then again I think that much fucking with it would ruin what base game was. Yeah. So um, I definitely appreciate keeping, I appreciate them not fucking up base game because they definitely fucked up the additional content when they put it outside. Yeah. So, you know, mm-hmm. you want to talk about the emails? Let's talk about the emails. So for those that haven't gotten the plus content, um, and this is part because this was like primarily made as a console release. Um, so, like, a big part of the game, the base game, is going into the actual game files where you can, like, mess with things. You can delete characters before they're ready, and, like, that will trigger some horror stuff. Or, like, Monica leaves text documents, like, can you hear me, and things. Um, so, to do that in a console release, they make it, like, a virtual desktop. But they also go a step further by making it the virtual desktop owned by this company called metaverse need to see on when he coined that term, um, which is made Doki Doki literature club 
as a simulated reality. It is, like, explicitly states the world of Doki Doki Literature Club is a virtual world where technically all the characters are sentient AIs. Monica is just the one that became, like, aware of... she. She's Neo, you know? <laughs> and then they, they explicitly yeah. say... Because um, the more, like, completion, like, the more side content you do, the more you get these emails that, like, explain things further. Like, it's an employee saying, like, I adjusted Monica's privileges and self-awareness, so let's see how that affects the game. And it's so... so you you hit the nail That's... on the head by, like, comparing it to midichlorians. Yeah. It's like... It, they're <laughs> answering the question of, how did Monica become sentient? And my response is, like, who fucking asked? <laughs> <laughs> yes, no one asked. These these are not this is not the content that we needed. This this was not yeah, I agree. Uh, th- there was also another thing they did. I don't know if you picked up on it was they implied that Monica created like oh my god, we're going to get into stupid deep lore. All right. The lore goes way deeper than I was prepared for. Um, basically they're like making separate small universes yes. in these AI things. And, and it's not necessarily a dating sim. However, Monica was a, apparently trying to create a player character to interface with the users or the spectators. Um, so that's how it manifests. And that is so dumb. That, that is, that, that upset me. Yeah. Cause it just completely, it just completely changes the character or not just the character but the whole like framing device because in the base game the framing device is that you are you and you found this free dating sim on steam so you boot it up you play the dating sim but what one of the characters is self-aware and wants to wants to be the object of affection and that's like you know that's a that's a baseline creepypasta idea but it fucking works in this, the framing device is that you are an employee for this company explicitly running trials on this game where you are explicitly, like, fucking with the character's ability to self be self-aware. Yes. Which just, like, uh, why? Like, I'm supposed to imply that, like, not only has, like, the base, like, the regular version of Doki Doki Literature Club has played out multiple times, but also the IRL version of Doki Doki Literature Club where it gets like horror has also played out multiple times. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no other way to say it other than midichlorians, man. It, it, it just goes into, I, I wonder how much they felt obligated to add content to the game and, and also add enough like lore shit. It's like, Oh, there's gotta be secret lore shit for the community to, there's got to be something to fuel game theory videos. Like I, Dan Salvato seems like a pretty self-aware dude at the very least from like the one panel I saw him at and standing next to his booth at PAX while I was waiting in a line for something. Um, So I just wonder if this was something foisted upon him by like the publishers. Like we need, we need to get teasers in there. Like it reads to me like sequel bait. Yes, I I, th- I think I didn't get to it earlier, but the side stories and optional content either feel like sequel bait or maybe because he also thinks of it in terms of I think his opinion has changed on the game after releasing it. Yeah, I think it's similar to my take 
where I was like, oh, the the initial release is very critical Mm -hmm. of the genre. To me, like, killed the genre in my brain. As I said earlier, I don't think you could gamify love. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't think it's a good thing to do that or, or like gamify characters into a Skinner box of romance. But that being said, I think after the fact and looking at the community that, that uh, loves the game and appreciates the game and loves the characters and loves him, I think he realized a part of him needed to throw them a bone. So I think a lot of that was throwing them a bone. Yeah. Does that make sense? And uh, like the sequel bait stuff, cause the very last email you get is like, it explicitly states that, like, this version of the game is VM1. I don't know what VM stands for. I'm sure virtual something. Virtual machine. Oh, virtual machine. Okay, sure. Is VM1, and then regular VM is the control group where Monica isn't aware. That's where the side story stuff t- takes place. And then it's like, oh, and then VM2, but that's even more unstable. And it's like, okay, so what's VM2 going to be? Is that, like, the next game? And I don't want there to be a next game like i i don't want a sequel you know i'd much rather i'd much rather team salvato do something differently with an entirely other genre yeah an entirely other if there need be a doki doki literature club sequel the only way i could see it working is if it's like frog fractions 2 there we go a murph bringing out the classics like i agree frog fractions 2 is a classic like literally imagine if like you know, something that's like, I'm trying to think of an anagram for Salvato, but, you know, they a, a, a <laughs> game comes out, and then it's like you're playing through it, and whoops, there's Monica. <laughs> she's she's game jumping, you know? Yes. <laughs> Wreck-It Ralph style. Yeah. <laughs> okay. She's going turbo. She's going turbo. Monica went turbo. God. Um... <laughs> And you know what? You can even call it that. You can give it that subtitle. Monica goes turbo. <laughs> God. Um, Jesus. Fuck. Are, are we done? Do we, do we need to do the wrap ups and the poems? Oh yeah, we did do poems. You asked there to be poems. Um, I mean, like I, you know, we, we ragged and dissected this game. I still think base game Doki Doki Literature Club deserves its hype. Um, I agree. Because it's definitely one of those games where I could see people more familiar with genres, particularly like the the psychological horror genres, being like, "eh, this is this is kind of overrated," and in a way, I guess it is a bit normy core. But you know, popular things are popular for reasons. Um, yeah. So I I think it's good. I, I think plus content, like the plus content's disappointing, but I'm glad to have paid for the game finally. There you go. The dream. For me, I think the the best way to summarize my feelings on the game now are I think it's a better satire on the genre than it is a horror game. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's something I definitely picked up more on this time playing through. Yeah. Um. All right. So with this, Murph, how do we want to do the poems? Let me just say, you know... You know, it should have just been called Doki Doki Poem Club. Yeah, there's a lot of fucking poems in the game. Oh. I liked the poems. I and I think the poems were a good way to understand the characters mm-hmm. and their frame of minds. Yeah, the poems by themselves are great. Yuri's was good. Natsuki's was good. They're, they were all good. And I also, man, I it just it just inspired me. Yeah, Murph. So you want my days in the creative writing club in high school? Okay, okay. Well, I was in drama club, so we're diametrically opposed foes. So you asked me to write a poem, and then we got AIs to write additional poems. Yes. 
So what do we want to do first? Um, this was your idea. Why don't you start with your poem? Okay. All right. I wrote the poem based on the Daydream cast. I, I did not do like a, a deep poem. Okay. I just did one based on our podcast. So it's nice and nice and light. Little There's a little weight to it, but not, not too spicy. All right. It, and I title it the Daydream cast. Okay. Every two weeks, I have a passing thought, a fantasy, and a glimpse into the past. A daydream of being someone I'm not. It may seem like it doesn't last. But it's measured by the silly games we play. This conversation is not a lossless compression of our experiences with the silly games we play. This conversation is not a lossless confession because everything is a loss and a gain. It only matters how you treasure your love and your pain. And so I invite you to this little spot every two weeks to have a passing thought, a fantasy, though it may seem fast, to join me and Murph for the Daydream cast. Ooh, ooh. There we yeah. go. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that was a poem, y'all. I did all it. All right, all right. We can have a, we can have Jack set that to a beat and make that our new intro. <laughs> oh God, no, please. <laughs> Anyways, go ahead, do yours. All now. right. So I um. I, I didn't really have any other inspiration other than, like, gamer. <laughs> so. <clears throat> gamer. Okay. I call this the Raven Game of the Year Edition. <laughs> okay, all right, I'm about it. Continue. Raven Game of the Year Edition. I'm in. For the audience's sake, you may want to mute yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Let me, hold on, I gotta zoom in. There we go. <clears throat> Once upon a midnight's gaming, caught in the chat, blustering and flaming, at some lowlife whose bot was aiming, I heard a gentle knock so taming, straining from my office door. To no tune was this knocking, not even the even rhythm of a shotgun cocking. I stepped away from the noob I was mocking, to investigate who was stalking, stalking outside my office door. The door I gently opened, stuck my head out to scope, and saw little to make one's hope end. Just the shadows making their steep slopes, and nothing more. Nothing more beyond my office door. Strange that there was nothing more. Paradoxical like an incel whore. Disappointing like plus content lore. Did I not hear something before? Before I opened my office door? Back to my game then, back to carrying my team again, back to the insults and vitriol when we did not win, back to the glow green, the glow of my screen and my RBG. Oh, if you could see, it was an island in a gamer's sea. The office door did not close, for explanation I cannot glose. From shadows, a demon rose, a demon with intent to hose. From that darkness, great wings flapped. The door shut, my exit capped. Now I was well and truly trapped, trapped with what had come through my office door. Not that I had noticed, for I was far too focused, had just unlocked the K2 Black Lotus, a gun only heard about from an anecdotus back in Anacortis, Anacortis, where I had purchased my office door. The next match started. At once I was disheartened, for the screen went black, the image departed, accompanied by a brief pop like a fat mouse had farted. I was left dumbstruck in the sea of the glow from my Razer RGB. If the screen had just died, I might have just read. But then I glimpsed what the shadows bade me see. 
a, a sight that nearly made me flee, flee right through my office door. For reflected in that dead black screen were feathers of blacker, deader sheen, and eyes that sparked with intellect's gleam. The sight caused the shrinking of my peen, and I nearly let out a coward's scream. It was some enigmatic raven, some ill-intended craven, standing so tall and brazen, framed perfectly by my office door. I could feel a stain on my small clothes start to skid. The RGB vanished through some failure of the grid. Were this Splatoon, here's where I'd flee as squid. Yet there was nowhere to hid. Nothing I could do, okay. and nothing I did. Say, feel the cold grasp of those shadows within which that corvid hid. From a feathered sheath, an assassin's blade slid. Quoth the raven, nothing personal, kid. <laughs> Is that it? That's it. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god there you go oh, this is, does that fucking do anything for you america <laughs> uh, i'm dead i'm dead man i've tapped out that got me that got me good so masterpiece thank you thank you we should have ended on that because the ai ones are worse <laughs> i i like the one i generated Mine is not that good. Mine, okay. Disclaimer on the AIs. How do you feel about AI art? AI art? I think it's... Anything. I consider poetry art. Yeah. Sorry, continue. Uh, I think it's a real nifty tool. Perhaps it leans more toy than tool. Um, I do not like how it takes other existing artists' art styles and effectively steals them. I think that's a real ethical problem we need to confront um but you know i i enjoy seeing like people typing in sopranos but it's an n64 game and seeing what generates i think it's real impressive but i also cannot shake the feeling that we're training an ai for some nefarious corporate end yeah where, where we could uh easily produce these things without someone crafting them yes um yeah, I, I was going to say, I think a big portion of the AI stuff is rooted in plagiarism. I think I think how AIs work naturally is they have to source from the internet. Yeah. And number one, the internet stuff did not consent to this sort of thing. And then the other thing is, is just like, yeah, it's, all, it's largely such, the core of it is derivative. And, and then, and then it comes from, I, I saw a tweet on Twitter where someone compared you know, some people think that the person typing in the prompt is the artist and then they're choosing the right art mm -hmm. out of the AI. And this is not what it is. It's much more like a client who is asking an artist to make something yeah. specific. And then they keep ordering the artist to make it until they're happy. It's much more like that. Yeah, it's, it's much um, closer to commissioning. Um. Yep. And uh, with this note... I got to say, my my poetry AI was not killing it today. I typed in the daydreamcast as the prompt, and it and this is literally what it says. It's only it's only five lines. All right. The daydreamcast, the audio program, the podcast, the spoken word, the poetry. Hmm. Okay. 
that's the it. poetry. So, uh, now, now, I don't mean to be like this to the AI. This is giving me real. You didn't do your homework last night, and you had to write down a poem. Can box. we add that subtitle to the to the podcast? The daydream cast, the poetry. <laughs> uh, that should be on the business card. Yeah. Um. What was yours? Go uh, ahead. Damn it! it I actually have two here. I'm not sure which one I want to go with. Um. You know what? To your end, I'll do the one that's about the daydream cast. There we go. Uh-oh. The Daydream cast was a mistake. A podcast... <laughs> a podcast that was doomed from the start. It was hyped up so much, but didn't live up to the hype. It was a disappointment for all who had bought it. It quickly became a forgotten dream, cast away into the night. But for some, the Daydream cast still holds a place in their hearts. It was a podcast with potential that was never fully realized. But for those who loved it, it will always be special. The Daydream cast may be gone, but it will never be forgotten. <laughs> okay. Well, you know what? We'll put mine at the start of the episodes, and we'll put that at the end of the episodes after they're disappointed. <laughs> yeah. All right. I think that works. Uh, is that it? Oh, we gotta do plugs. Yeah, plug, plug in the way. Tomorrow's just a plug away. Uh, it's on, on the Twin Geeks Network. We've got the Twin Geeks Podcast, our flagship podcast, hosted by pals Calvin and David, who go through full director filmographies piece by piece. Uh, they are still doing Robert Altman. They're gonna be doing it till the do- end of time, man. Yeah, the man made a lot of movies. But... Excuse me. <laughs> huh. God. Then we've got the stacks. Steven has asked that I just, in like, just the stacks. Just the umbrella of stacks. They do a rotating number of shows. I don't need to detail each one. But they're all film-related. I'll say that much. Uh, 808 and Pod Breaks, okay. also hosted by Calvin and pal Kevin, where they talk about different hip-hop and rap albums individually, really going into, like, niche genres and artists. Uh, <laughs> Other podcasts on the site. <laughs> Aha, I found my list. Uh, I'm thinking of Spoiling Things, go. hosted by Steven and Vaughn, where they talk about recent releases. Go listen to the two-part rehearsal extravaganza. Uh, oh, that's so exciting. They, they worked really hard on that. I know, I was there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, let me let me tell you. Uh, also, by the way, tease not for the next episode, but Vaughn will be uh, playing... A link to the past with us. Oh, yes, for, for episode after next. And then uh, some other ones are kind of on hiatus at the moment, like uh, Ranking the Monsters and the Motern cast. Don't let the Motern cast get you. Uh, Ranking the Monsters, you can still go listen to the episodes. Each week, Stephen and Calvin look at two uh, kaiju movies, whether like old or recent. It's not always like Godzilla. Um, and put them in an ongoing, very long tier list ranking them from number one to um, I think they're all the way down at like number 30 or something. So it's quite a few. And then Don't Let the Modern Cast Get You, which I think is building up for a, uh, a special episode. It uh, follows the career of one Matthew Farley living in New England, who is a micro-budgeted filmmaker with over uh, 72,000 songs on Spotify, ranging from such titles as Poop in My Fingernails to States Names Sung. It's a, it's a rather interesting podcast looking at a rather interesting uh, artist, and they're building up to uh, an episode on his movie, Le- uh, Local Legends, which is something that I like quite a bit. I, I love that movie. 
Oh, and I, I should I should plug. I forgot. Um, Mac. Yes. Mac uh, does uh, outside of the Twin Geeks Network. Mac was on the Skull Monkeys episode recently. Uh, he does uh, critically optimistic and uh, uh, super fun stuff. Um, he did a Cannibals episode, and he was going to plug us for later on this month, I believe. So we need to make a plug. Mark. Yeah, yeah. I, I plug his back. He plugs mine. Yep, there we go. Um, so what are we... Uh, anybody else? What was that? Uh, no one that's bribed me recently. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Um, what's the next game? Well, the next game... Well, actually, I should say, do you know how to pronounce these things? Ico? It's Ico. Damn it. Okay, fine. Go ahead. All right. the uh, the next uh, the next episode will be Eco from Team Eco. Um, very very important game, super big. Um, we will have a guest on it, Theomini or Casative. She's a she is a big fan of these games, and um, we we will have fun talking about it. And then after that, will be a link to the past with Vaughn. And then after that, You're just laying it all out. I'm well, not all of it. I was saying the next one is gonna be. After after a link to the past, it's gonna be Castlevania three with a mystery guest. Who is the mystery guest? I won't say yet, but it's somebody. Who knows? All right, that's it. It could be Murph's dad. Oh ho ho! I love it when Papa comes home. <laughs> that's a Doki Doki Literature Club <laughs> reference, kids. <laughs> okay, uh, are we playing out? Yeah, yeah. I think I think the music's started. Okay, good. Oh, that was it. Yeah, a clean two hours. <laughs>